0: Uh, what I'd like to share with you this morning um, is uh, a message that uh, is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, I love the uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, I love the books of Daniel. Um, pretty much anything around the uh, the Babylonian captivity I find just incredibly interesting and incredibly um, profitable for for us to study um, today um, so this morning, we are going to actually be in Nehemiah chapter 4. Um, Nehemiah chapter 4. And our big idea for today is that when we face opposition, when facing opposition, we need to remember the Lord. And this is, this is, what, this is what Nehemiah is going to face. So I'm going to give you guys a little bit of background here. Um, It's kind of hard to jump right in the middle of a book uh, without knowing some of the background information. So Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, in the Jewish scriptures, it's actually one book. Um, It's it's one complete work, um, and um, there's a little bit of a debate over who actually wrote it, um, because it does use the first person um, for both books, and it, it does kind of change its style a little bit when it transitions from Ezra to Nehemiah. Um, it is written 50 years after Nebuchadnezzar came in, the king of Babylon came in, and absolutely destroyed everything in Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple, he destroyed all the great houses, he destroyed the wall, he burnt it basically to the ground and left it just in absolute and complete ruin, um, we find this out in Second in Kings chapter, chapter 25, and it's only two verses. And it mentions that uh, the chief of his guard went in and just decimated this entire, entire place. But Ezra and Nehemiah cover the story of three men. The first man that it talks about is a man by the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel goes in, and what God has commissioned him to do is to rebuild the temple. Uh, rebuild the temple. The temple uh, was was destroyed. Um, this was Solomon's temple originally, and God calls Zerubbabel to go and rebuild the temple. The second man that is called is a man by the name of Ezra. Ezra is to come in and he is to teach the people who are living in Jerusalem the Torah. He is supposed to go back and restore the followings and the teachings of the law of Moses. And that's, that's what his job is. And finally, we come to this man, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is an interesting character, um, very interesting character in, in Scripture, because uh, we find out that um, Nehemiah has, has some connection to, to Jerusalem, that he... Um, he obviously is of, is of Jewish uh, heritage, um, but he is very concerned about the state of Jerusalem and, and what sort of state it is, it is in. And as we just read here this morning in Nehemiah chapter 1, um, his brother and some others come back and he asks, he says, hey, what is going on in Jerusalem? How are the people? What is happening and the report that his brother brings back is that Jerusalem is still in really bad shape. Sure, the temple is being built. Uh, the temple's been built. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's starting to, to do some things. But the wall is completely torn down. And the people of Jerusalem are absolutely exposed. Exposed to other nations coming in and basically plundering them. Because they have no protection around them at all. They are laid bare to the entire world. And what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah does what every single man of God should do, first and foremost. And this is our first principle for today. So if you have your hand out there, our first principle today is when grieved... God's people turn to God. And that's what John read this morning. When grieved, God's people turn to God. Nehemiah hears this terrible report of his hometown. And the first thing he does is starts fasting and praying, crying out to God. Nehemiah confesses to God. He says, Listen, Lord, we know, we know that you promised that if we were unfaithful, that you would scatter us. But if we return to you, if we return to you, you would be faithful. You would bless us. You would restore us. He confesses the sins of not only the nation, he confesses the sins of himself. And his father. He says, listen, we're all guilty. And then he ends his prayer with a request. He says, what I am about to do. See, Nehemiah, through his prayer, has been given a plan. And it ends with what Nehemiah's job is. Now, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. The cupbearer's job, it was a dangerous job. It was. Um, so his job was basically, when the king or, you know, when they threw a party or whatever, his job was to basically test out the wine to make sure that it wasn't poisoned. Um, those of us who live in northeast Pennsylvania, we're familiar with, uh, with coal miners, right? Coal mining is, is a huge part of this. Um, back in the day, um, when they would go into one of the shafts or whatever, they sort of had a cupbearer. Now, it wasn't a person. It was a bird, right? It was a canary. They'd take a canary down, and they would, you know, they'd leave the canary there or whatever, and when they, when they, you know, were looking around or whatever, they'd check on the canary every once in a while to make sure that there weren't any harmful gases there. And guess what? If the canary died, you got out of the mine shaft. This is, this is his job. He is the guinea pig, okay? He is the one that has to find out if It's been poisoned or not. The wine has been poisoned. And he brings the cup to the king. Now this was also a very trusted job. Because again, if anybody was going to kill the king, if anybody plotted against the king, this would be a good guy to kind of have on the inside here, right? I mean, this is a guy you could pay off. This is a guy you could, you know, you could manipulate so that you could take the king out. The trust that Nehemiah had to have in the eyes of the king was unquestioning. He could not, he could not be doubted for a second. He had to be absolutely loyal to the king. The last thing about his position is that it is an important position. Someone needed to do this. And this individual had direct access to the king. Direct access to the king. So Nehemiah goes in to the king, and obviously he's just been crying out. He's weeping, and he's sad. Chapter two the king says, Why are you sad? You're not sick. Why are you sad? Nehemiah pours his heart out to the king. He says, my city's in ruins, where my fathers and my forefathers, where they are buried, is in ashes. There's rubble all around. There's no protection. The king says, what are you asking of me? Right there we see our first principle again. Nehemiah says, I prayed to God. And then I asked the king, let me go and rebuild the city. The king responds to him with a great phrase. How long? How long will you be gone? He asks him. He says, hey, you know what? You're going to take a leave of absence? Uh, how long? How Nehemiah gets bold. And he tells them, and he says, listen, not only will I be gone, but can you give me a passport? Can you give me a letter so that I can go across all the, all the provinces without any problem? And not only can you give me a passport, can you give me supplies in order to build? And the king says yes to everything that Nehemiah asks for. So Nehemiah goes, and he enters Jerusalem. And the first thing he does is he goes to the walls, and he starts to inspect the walls. He's looking around at everything. The officials in Jerusalem are starting to wonder, what is this guy doing? He just came, you know, what's he doing? Why is he looking at the walls? Whatever, whatever. And after Nehemiah is done inspecting the walls, he turns to the officials and he says, I am here to rebuild these walls. The Lord has blessed me. He has sent me. His hand is upon me. And by his providence, we will rebuild these walls. He tells them that he has the blessing of the king to do this. They know he has the materials to do this. And it says that the people of Israel did something great. And my wife makes fun of me for this all the time because I I don't, okay? I've got got baby hands, okay? I do. I have baby hands. Like, I have baby hands. I have baby feet. I have baby everything or whatever. But it says in chapter 2 that the Israelites strengthened their hands, and they did what Nehemiah asked them to do. They strengthened their hands. They got ready to start working. But there's a guy at the end of chapter two. His name's Sandballot. This guy is just... I don't know. He's... Uh, he's a wet blanket. I mean, for like, lack of a better term, he is a wet blanket. When everybody's excited about something, he's the one that's like, well, you know, it's a good idea and all. But, yada, 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 yada. Everyone's excited. Everyone's ready to go. Sam Ballard opens his mouth. Can you really do this? Is this really going to happen? Nehemiah responds. God will do this. And he looks at Sam Ballot and he says, And you will have no part. You will have no part in it. But God is going to do this. So we come to chapter three, and chapter three is a great chapter. If you get a chance this week and you can pronounce all of these names, more power to you. Um, but if you get a chance this week, read chapter three. It is a list. It is a list of the people of of Jerusalem and what they did in order to help rebuild this wall. And it talks about different houses and different officials and how they worked. Their sons and their daughters worked. And they were so excited about this project that everyone kind of adopted either a section of the wall, a tower, a gate. And it just talks about how these people all built together. And we come to chapter 4. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. I think the first question we have to ask here is, we've already met this, this Sanballat guy, But why is he so angry? Why is he so mad about this? I mean, really, they're just, they're building a wall. Why is he angry? Why is he upset? Well, he's upset for a few reasons. We have to ask ourselves, what does a wall represent to him? See, Ballot's already on the outside. I would not be surprised if Sanballat and another character that we're going to meet in a second was part of the problem. These were the individuals that were coming in and plundering Jerusalem. They were taking advantage of the fact that there wasn't a wall. And now that there is a wall, it's going to provide a perimeter that Sanballat and his people can't get into. Nehemiah has already told him, listen, you're on the outside. You've got no part of it. You're, You're already banished to the outside. You're not getting inside of the city. But, why is he so mad? Well, it represents a perimeter. It also represents protection for Jerusalem. Again, if he was somehow profiting off of the fact that there weren't walls, he'd be upset that the people of Israel are now going to be protected. You're cutting off his supply chain. He's mad, he's upset. And the last thing, and we're going to see this later in, in the book of Nehemiah, we're not really going to talk about it much, but Sanballat's going to basically accuse Nehemiah of setting himself up as a king in Jerusalem. That you are building this wall as a show of power. That you are somehow going to overthrow the king by building this wall. We're going to see in a second that Nehemiah is is not phased by this. The fact that Sanballat's so angry. Our second principle here. We're going to go with our second and our third principle here because I kind of glazed over the second one here. But our second principle is that God places his people... In positions to carry out his plan. God places his people in positions to carry out his plan. Now we've already seen this with Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah was in a very unique position. Nehemiah, you know, when he rose to cupbearer, he may not have even thought of the fact that he was going to make a request like this to the king. To go back and rebuild the walls. But God knew, and God placed him in that position in order to accomplish his plan. The funny thing is, God also placed Sandballot here to accomplish his plan. We're not going to get too into that, but we need to realize that, that Sandballot's part of the, the plan here. Part of the design. Nebuchadnezzar was was part of the design to go in and destroy Jerusalem. This is all within God's plan. Our third principle that we're going to jump into here, because this this is really what we're going to talk about in this section, the people and powers of this world will seek to discredit and derail the plan of God. The people and powers of this world will seek... To discredit and derail the plans of God, and this is what Sanballat's doing here. He's angry. He jeers at the Jews. He makes fun of them. We have this saying: "Sticks and stones will never break my bones. Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me." That's not true. But that's basically what he's about to do here. Verse two, it says, and he said in the presence of his brothers and the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Men in here, men, let me see your eyes. You want to be called feeble? No, I don't want to be called feeble. I got baby hands. (laughs) I got baby feet. I don't, I don't really... I can say that about me. My wife can say that. Don't you say that about me. Call me feeble. I don't want to be called feeble. Look where he says it. In front of his brothers and in front of the entire army of Samaria. What is Sanballat doing here? He's puffing himself up. He's got a crowd... He wants to rile them up. He wants to get them as upset as he is. He asks some questions. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Listen, Sam is telling us how difficult the job is that they have ahead of them the irony is most of these things they're going to come darn near close to coming true they're going to come darn near close the one thing that isn't true is his second question first he says what are these feeble Jews doing his second question will they restore it for themselves no they won't restore it for themselves god will restore it for them and that is what's truly scary here you see sam ballad is focused on the men of jerusalem he is focused on the task at hand god does not factor into his equation at all but he's looking at the manpower and he's looking at the job And he's saying, there is no way. There is no way any of this is going to happen. Verse 3, then Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he said, guys, Tobiah, I mean, he he reminds me. This is like, uh, you know, in cartoons when we were little, you had the bad guy. And then you had his little, like, sidekick you know, who probably was, was shorter than he was. And, um, you know, maybe like, you know, Gaston had, what was that other, La Le LeFou, right? Right, he's, you know, he's, he's shorter and he's got this squeaky voice and, you know, he, he just, everybody's riled up and he's like, i want to get my shot in. You know, he's like, I'm ready. I want to get my shot in here. And he says, yes, what they are building, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. How heavy is a fox? It's not very heavy, right? It's also a very sure-footed animal. I mean, they're, they're graceful, they're elegant, they, they kind of bounce around, you know, they're, they're, they're very, very light. And Tobiah is basically saying, listen, even what they've accomplished already If a fox jumped on it, it would knock it down. You know, archaeologists have studied the wall that Nehemiah built. You know how thick the wall was? It was nine feet. Nine feet thick all around the city. That might be... It's one heck of a fox. I mean, I just I'm saying, like, you know, to, to knock that down, that's one heck of a fox. But that's not really what Tobias saying. It is, but really, he's just trying to continue to rile everyone up here. Verse four. And I want you guys to remember our first principle here as we read this. Verse four, we have Nehemiah's response. Hear, O God, we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Turn back their own taunt on their own head. You know, I mentioned that sticks and stones thing. We had another saying when we were little, you know, that I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks on you. It's basically what Nehemiah is saying here. But there's something greater to what Nehemiah does and what he says. See, what does Nehemiah not do? Nehemiah hears about this He hears about the fact that Sanballat and Tobiah are making fun of them. They're jeering at the Jews. He hears this. What does he not do? He doesn't respond directly to Sanballat or Tobiah. He doesn't fire back. He doesn't automatically respond and say, Yeah, well, you're dumb. Yeah, well, uh, whatever. No. Where does he go? When godly men or God's people are grieved, where do they turn? They turn to God. And he says, God, you will take care of this. He says, just as they said of us, do to them. God, lay them bare. He uses very specific phrases here. He says, listen, do not cover their guilt. Let their sin not be blotted out from your sight. He's saying expose them. Lay them out bare. And you enact your vengeance. God, vengeance is not mine. It's yours. God, they are not mad at at my plan. Nehemiah never once says, oh, they're upset with me and what I'm trying to do. Nehemiah says, God, guess what? They've angered you and your plan. Not my plan, your plan, God. There's a neat little play here that, that the writer gives us here. Uh, Sandbalad is standing in front of armies and his brothers. He is in the presence of them. And he he spouts these these terrible things, these these things that are that are meant to derail and distract. What does it say about God? He says God they have angered you for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. See, listen, Sam Ballot's angry. But guess what? God, he's angry too. Sam Ballad has provoked him to anger. Oh, but well, we but 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 Billy, you know, they've got a they've got an army over here, and guess what? God's got builders. Um Builders versus the armies of Samaria. Builders. Which one's more powerful? That's the question we have to ask. So verse 6. So we built the wall and it was all joined together to half its height and the people had a mind to work. Guys, we have a united people behind a common task here. They've strengthened their hands. They're working. They have a leader who fears God, who has the plan of God, who has the the hand of God on him. And when they hear his voice, they work. And they work to the point where the speed at which they're working is unheard of. They've already got half of it done. Done. And the nations are seeing this. Through opposition, they are still continuing to work. Through being made fun of, they are still continuing to work. And guys, this is our our encouragement. And I really want to encourage you this morning in this. Sometimes when we think about what God's plan is for our life, we have a tendency to look at what's easiest. Oh, well, God just made this path really, really easy. So that's the, that's the path that I'm supposed to, that's the one that I'm supposed to go on. You know what? This one hurts. This path over here hurts less than this plan over here. So I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go to the, the one that hurts less. That's not what God asked Nehemiah to do. It's obviously not what he asked our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to do, was to take the the easy path. Nehemiah's task is huge. He's facing opposition. The opposition's going to get worse. Verse 7, But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites heard that the repairing of the walls was going forward, And that the breaches were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. Whoa, hang on. We had two people before. We had the Sumerians and we had, you know, Tobiah too. We had Sanballat and Tobiah. But now, wait a minute, we've got the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites. Oh my goodness. Like, this is getting out of hand. This is getting scary. We've got so many people that are seeking to destroy us, to discredit us. We could handle the Sumerians, maybe. Tobiah and, and Sanballat. Maybe they're not so bad, but now we have a whole group of people that are surrounding us. And guess what? They're threatening to take it beyond words now. They're saying we're going to attack them. We're going to band together. We're going to do everything we can to confuse them so that they cannot complete their task. Remember our third principle. The people and powers of this world will seek to discredit and derail the plan of God. This should not come as a surprise to us when we're going through opposition, when things aren't going right in our life, and we start to doubt, when people start to work against us, and we know for a fact that this is what God has called us to do as the people of God, it should not surprise us that the people and the powers of this world work against us. What does Jesus say? Jesus says... That the world is going to hate you because it first hated me. We shouldn't be surprised. This shouldn't come as a shock to us. When God begins to move. When his plan is enacted. When his people are doing what they've called to do. What they've been called to do. It's gonna get uncomfortable. When God starts to move in our life, when God starts to give us a direction, it's going to get uncomfortable. When you guys are, are, are getting involved in one another's lives and really getting involved in one another's lives and seeking that all of you may grow closer to Christ and you're growing closer to Christ together, guess what? It's going to get uncomfortable. There's going to be questions that we don't want to ask. See, Nehemiah is following hard after what God has called him to do, and it's getting uncomfortable. Verse 9, what do the people do? See, we've seen Nehemiah pray now, but now it says, and we prayed to God. And set a guard as protection against them day and night. But verse 10. Now here's where it starts to get really difficult. And in Judah it was said. Guys, the opposition is it's on the outside here. But now it says, in Judah it was said. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we are not able to rebuild the wall. These jeers and these threats. It's starting to get scary. Oh, there's too much work. The job's too big. There's too much work to be done. How can we possibly complete this? The The derailment, the discredit, the discouragement is starting to creep into Judah. How are we going to do this? We're tired. We're exhausted. We're working day and night. I'm doing everything I can. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Again, we've talked about this several times in the Gospel of John. It's amazing how many times. Amazing how many times the Jewish people say something that is the exact truth. That by themselves they will not be able to do this, but with God's help anything is possible. Verse 11, and our enemies say they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. What is this? They will not know until we're right among them. And then we'll kill them. And we'll stop the work. What is this? This is terrorism, right? This is terrorism. At its truest form. We're going to sneak in. They're not going to know who we are. We're going to send people in and we are going to derail this whole operation. We're going to put a stop to it. We're going to scare the people so bad that they can't do anything. That they cannot function. We will stop this project. But it gets worse. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. See, guys, there are Jews that are living in the land that not only has Nehemiah said, You've got no part to us to sandball it, but Ezra, when he came in and he saw all of the intermarrying that was going on with the people in the area, there were Jews that he said, Stay away, keep out. You are not welcome here because of your actions. And now these Jews are hearing these things and they're coming. And they're saying, get out while you can. That place is a dumpster fire. It's just waiting. You guys are sitting ducks. Get out of there. Discouragement. Distraction. Fear. All of these things are right on the doorstep. But is not scared. Remember our second principle? God places his people in position to carry out his plan. See, not only is Nehemiah in the right position, but God's given Nehemiah a plan. Verse 13 So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, in the open places, I stationed people by their clans with swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. See, God causes Nehemiah to have a plan for this opposition. You know what? They say they're going to come in. What I'm going to do is I'm going to provide a level of protection here. I'm going to station men. And not only am I going to station men, I am going to station them by their families. I don't know how many of you have ever been afraid for your family's life. Where you've been in a situation where someone is attacking you. And not only are they going to kill you, but there is potential that they are going to kill your entire family. Nehemiah knows that this is an incredible motivator for people. The concern for their families. So what he does is he makes sure that their families are in sight. He separates them by their clans. And he says, listen, while you're working, if you're afraid of this, I'm going to let you bring your kids to work. I am. I'm going to let you bring your kids to work. I'm going to let you bring everybody to work. And we're going to work together together. We're going to continue to work together. But the most important thing he says is at the end of verse 14 Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Spears, swords, chainmail, guns, knives. Nuclear bombs, nothing compared to our Lord. Nothing compared to our God. Yet yeah, your families are important. It's a good motivator. The most important thing when you're facing opposition and you are doing the will of God is to remember the Lord. Again, our first principle. When the people of God are grieved, they turn to God. They don't turn to their weapons. They don't turn to their words. They don't turn to their own might. They don't turn to their own wit. They turn to the Lord. When our enemies heard, verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that our God, had frustrated their plans. What a great line. We all returned to work, each one to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on his work with one hand and held his weapon on the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while they built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people. The work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet. Rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. See, God not only positioned them where they needed to be in order to accomplish his purpose. God also equipped them to do exactly what they needed to do. Guys, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny. Um, Nehemiah, his strength was not enough. His words were not enough. His mind was not enough. His anger was not enough. But God was enough. Do you know that they completed the wall? The entire wall, nine feet thick around the entire city. In less than two months. The speed at which they did it, the Bible records that it brought fear to all of the nations around them. The nations feared because they knew that the God of Israel had completed something that was impossible. By all human standards, absolutely impossible. Do you know that not once during the construction of the wall were the people of God physically attacked? But they were ready. They were ready. So the temple is complete, the word is being taught to the people. They're restoring sacrifices. They're they're trying their best to keep the law. The wall is completed. So what do they do at the end of Nehemiah? They throw a big party. They're like, yeah, all right, dedicate the temple. Hey, Ezra, come on out. Bring out that big old Torah. Start reading it to everyone. There is rejoicing. It is great. It is high times. And the opposition is scared. And the people get complacent. When the pressure was on, they were focused. Now that the pressure's off, they're not focused. I say that this is one of my favorite books of the Bible, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. It's also an incredibly depressing book of the Bible. See, the people of Jerusalem thought that by building the temple, that the presence of the Lord would return. That the Shekinah glory would come back. That they would be able to physically see the Lord again by rebuilding this temple. And guess what? It didn't happen. And they got frustrated. And they started letting the temple go. And they started neglecting sacrifices. You know what? Ezra came in. Ezra said, listen, we're going to restore the law. We're going we're to turn the people back to the law. And, and that, that'll fix things. Everything will be great then. Israel will be out of captivity. It'll be great. That didn't happen. So we kind of stopped obeying the Sabbath and uh, we, we went back to intermarrying with other people around us. Hey, you know what? Uh, but maybe, maybe we'll, go, we'll go one for three. You know, maybe we'll go one for three. At least we have the protection of the wall, right? We got the protection of the wall. We can celebrate that. Well, everybody around you is scared. And the wall starts to get neglected. People are sleeping outside the wall. They're doing business outside of the wall. The wall isn't doing what it was designed to do. People are coming in and going out. It's being completely neglected. Nehemiah, oh boy, Nehemiah goes from this weeping servant at the beginning, this this crying servant crying out to God. Do you know how he ends? He ends beating people up and pulling their hair out because they're not following the law. I mean, that's, that's great. Like He rips people's hair out. He says, listen, you're, you're intermarrying. You're not supposed to. Turns into a street fighter. Here's the point of these books. That when we do face opposition, we are supposed to turn to God. That we're supposed to remember the Lord. But as Christians, we have a higher calling. See, where rebuilding the temple was in God's plan, but it didn't solve the problem. God would send, in the form of a baby boy, a new temple. That this individual would say that if you tear down this temple, watch the speed at which I rebuild it. He would come to this earth. He would live a completely sinless life. And he would fulfill and keep the entirety of the law. And as a wall provides protection, he would protect us from sin and death by going to the cross and dying for our sins. Not just to provide temporary protection, but to provide the ultimate form of salvation, the salvation of our souls. See, the problem that these Jewish people still faced was addressed by Jeremiah that their heart was still not what it needed to be. Their heart was not regenerated. Their heart was not reborn. And by sacrifices of the temple, by keeping the law, by having the protection of a city like Jerusalem, none of these things could satisfy that. None of these things could change their heart. They would always wander away and wander back. But our God will fight for us. And that's our fourth principle there. Our God fights for his people. You know, he continues to fight for us. He is our advocate in heaven. When we face opposition... What we need to do first and foremost, God's people turn to God when we're grieved. We need to realize that God has placed you in a position to accomplish his plan. Just as the Jews did, as they strengthened their hands, as they worked together. If we are here for a purpose, if God has called us to a greater calling, as he positioned people and equipped them, we need to be ready to go. He has placed us in a position to carry out his plan. We need to realize that when we start to carry out his plan, that the people and the powers of this world, those who don't know Christ, those who are on the outside, the devil, Satan himself, he will seek to oppose us and derail the plan of God. We need to know that. We need to not be surprised by it. It it should not catch us off guard. And lastly, we need to remember that our God will fight for us. We don't need to defend ourselves. We don't need to fight. Our God is bigger than any fight that's in me. Our God is bigger than any fight that's in you. Our God is bigger than any fight in this country, out of this country, or around the world. My encouragement to you this morning is that when you face opposition, as Nehemiah said, as Paul repeated, remember the Lord. Do his will.